This is Sports and Torts with David Spada and Elliot Harris on TalkZone.com. On the phone, we have a gentleman who I remember playing quarterback for the Cincinnati Bengals back in the late 70s, early 80s. I watched him at Super Bowl against the 49ers. Elliot remembers him back in college. Elliot's a little older than me. Ken Anderson, how are you doing today, Ken? I'm doing fantastic. How are you guys doing? Great. Great. I see that you grew up, what, in Batavia? Yeah, not too far west of Chicago. Um, in fact, uh, I guess my claim to fame is uh, my next-door neighbor through the backyards was Dan Issel, who was a All-American basketball player at Kentucky and uh, now in the NBA Hall of Fame. So Issel was the second-best athlete to come out of Batavia. Well, I, I think we'll rank him <laughs> number one because he's in the Hall of Fame. Okay. There was also another famous person from that area. There was a Miss uh, USA at that time, I think. Um, that may have been—I uh, don't know—that may have been after me. There, you got me on that one. <laughs> she, she certainly wasn't in school when I was there. <laughs> you would have noticed. Yes. Batavia is not exactly a hotbed of football, but even with that in mind. How did you end up at Augustana and not a large school? Well, you know, when I was coming out of high school, I was about uh, maybe six one and weighed about 170 pounds and was probably a better basketball and baseball player than I was a football player. So I was actually going to Augustana to play basketball and baseball. And uh, that summer, my high school football coach uh, talked me into to writing a letter to the, the football coach at Augie and to see if I could try out. And, you know, a lot of times, at least at that point in time, at Division three schools, they take warm bodies to fill out the roster. So they let me try out. And uh, by the, the second or third game of the year, I was the starting quarterback on the varsity. Did Big Ten schools not come after you? or No, I, I was just too small, and I didn't have a, a great high school football career. You know, a, a few teams uh, had looked at me, and I, I probably could have gone to other schools you know, the size uh, of Augustana, you know, Milliken down in Decatur and uh, McMurray down in the southern part of the state, but nothing bigger than that. Okay. When did you realize that you were good enough to play in the NFL? Well, I, I think after my my sophomore year, uh, you know, scouts started coming by and, and certainly uh, the spring uh, of my going into my senior year, uh, a lot of scouts, uh, you know, came by and worked me out. But there was no combine in those days. And and I, as I recall, just about every team in the NFL uh, came to watch me play in person. Uh, the one that did not was the closest one, and that was the Bears. That's because the Bears had that great quarterback, Bobby Douglas, back then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I guess they didn't need me. But anyway, it was kind of... <laughs> You know, Jack Brickhouse, one of the, the great announcers of all time, uh, his daughter was in my class. And so she would drag him out for homecoming every year. And he would go back and tell the Bears, I may not know what I'm talking about, but I think there's this kid at August 10 that might be able to play quarterback. You, you might have been able to help out the Bears. <laughs> Just a little bit. No, I think every, well, I think, you know, everybody at, at that point – you know, would love to play for your hometown team. And, you know, and I grew up with the Bears and, you know, uh, you know, the days of Billy Wade and, and Rudy Bukic and, and those guys and watching Gale Sayers score six touchdowns in the mud at Wrigley Field against the 49ers. And, but, you know, the best thing that ever happened to me was going to Cincinnati and, and getting to play for, you know, Paul Brown as my head coach. And, and probably the biggest advantage was Bill Walsh was my first coach. Leading up to the NFL draft, 
did you have an idea how high you would go and what team was interested in you? Well, you know, uh, at that point in time, I, I think everybody thought that Dallas was the team because they sent out more information than anybody else. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I really didn't know. Um, I didn't know if I'd get drafted. I, I thought I would get a chance to, to go with some team uh, to a camp. But, uh, you know, then, uh, you know, the, the Bengals liked me, and and uh, their gauge on me is, is once Lynn Dickey went, uh, he was out of Kansas State in the time, and once he went, uh, then they thought it was time to take me, and uh, luckily they did, because uh, I think Atlanta, with the next pick, was going to take me. So uh, going to Cincinnati was perfect for me. What was it like, your first training camp with the uh, Bengals? Well, it was, uh, you know, it was eye-opening. Uh, you know, uh, the, the players that you're playing against are bigger and faster, but then you quickly realize the players I'm playing with on offense are, are bigger and faster. And the, the one advantage that I had is we didn't have a large number of, of, of players in camp. In fact, we started off, we only had two quarterbacks, Virgil Carter, who was the starter, and, uh, and myself. So I liked my chances of making the team at that point. And, uh, you know, there, we had the advantage in those days that, uh, you know, training camp, I reported my first camp, I think, July 7th. Uh, and we were in Wilmington, Ohio till the middle of September. Uh, so, and, and we played six preseason games. So there were a, a lot more practice opportunities, a lot more game opportunities for, for a young guy. And, you know, I, 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 I felt I had a lot of work to do, but I felt I had a chance to play in the league. Now, 1971 was a pretty good year for quarterbacks. Jim Plunkett went first, Archie Manning went second, Dan Pastorini went third, and then no quarterbacks until round three were, as you said, Lynn Dickey got drafted ahead of you. And, and then Joe Theismann, went, Joe Theismann went in the seventh round that year. Right, right. So, you know, despite all the publicity machine that Notre Dame may have been able to crank out for his career, a guy from Augustana ends up. I would assume you go into Cincinnati with not the buildup that a, a well, pocket or, or, or some of these other guys had who were drafted ahead of you. Well, I, I think a lot of the media in, in in Cincinnati didn't even know where Augustana was. And, you know, taking this no-name kid in the third round from a Division three school, but you know, I think Bill Walsh had a plan. I mean, he you know by that time I was six two, two fifteen, which was about the the prototype size for a quarterback in the NFL in those days. I was, I was pretty mobile and, you know, he could literally, I, I was more of an option running quarterback in college and, and literally, uh, you know, the draft in those days was in January. And so I, uh, moved to Cincinnati the first week of February and he and I started working out and we literally started walking through footwork, uh, you know, three, five, seven step drops, so moving your feet. The next week, you know, you're at a jog, and, and then you're three-quarters. I mean, it was a month before I'm even attempting to do anything full speed, but he could kind of break me down and, and mold me to the kind of quarterback he wanted me to be. Did you see the true genius of Bill Walsh back then? Oh, no question about it. Just with his, you know, his offensive schemes, uh, you know, I, I think what he was known for is just, you know, how the quarterback's, footwork and the timing and the depth of the routes and the steps of the receivers all tied together, how 
Uh, you know, I think a lot of the West Coast offense started because, you know, they didn't have a great running game, and, and using your running backs in the passing game became an extension of the running game. And so not only was uh, the whole field used vertically, the whole field was used horizontally. Did you see the genius of Paul Brown who drafted a tackle, an offensive tackle, an offensive guard ahead of you in 71? Well, you know, Paul had a, a great eye for talent, and, and you know, he – was not uh, heavily involved in the game planning in, in those days. He left that to the assistants. Uh, he was, you know, very involved in, in on-game decisions, but he had a, a great eye for talent. And, and I think one of the great eyes he had is when, you know, a, a good player's days were behind him. Uh, you know, and it's always tough to let players go, but uh, he kind of knew when you were at the end. Uh, but like I said, I think, you know, one of his, he, he was such an innovator. I mean, it, it's well documented what he did, brought to the NFL. I, I think to a certain extent, the way NFL teams operate today are, are because of the way Paul Brown started doing it back in the old Cleveland Brown days. Yeah, you, you talk about letting players go. I'm looking at the 1971 Bengals roster, and it looked like a pretty young team. There's, you know, a guy here, a guy there that might have been, you know, six years older than you, but the overwhelming majority are within a couple, three years of you. Did that make the the, the process, the transition simpler? Well, you know, and I, I, I think one of the things that made it easier is, you know, being able to move to Cincinnati in February. So before you go to training camp, you know, I had been through the installation process twice uh, as far as the offense was concerned. We had a lot of players that lived in town. You got to know them before you know, you went to training camp, and geez, you know, in 71, that was only the fourth year removed from expansion for the Bengals who came into existence in 68. So, you know, when in those days, you got kind of the, the leftovers of the league, and so for those first three years, there was a lot of transition of players just because of the expansion. When did the Bengals turn the corner to become a playoff contender? Well, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, in, in 72 was my first year as a starter. But I, I really think, you know, in, in 73, uh, you know, we, we were a playoff team. And, uh, you know, we, we got Isaac Curtis that year, who was a, a tremendous, and was one of the great wide receivers of all time. Was, you know, he was uh, a football player that was a world-class sprinter rather than being a world-class sprinter who tried to play football. And that really, you know, really opened things up for us. We had a pretty explosive offense. And, uh, you know, that year, uh, I think we might have won the division that year over Pittsburgh. What was your main strength, your accuracy or arm strength, or how would you assess yourself? Well, you know, I, I, I kind of get labeled sometimes a, a dink and dunk quarterback. I think I used everybody. Uh, I, I think if you, you go back and you look at my yards per uh, attempt, uh, it, it's right there with Dan Marino and some of those guys. I don't think you would classify them as, as dink and dunk quarterbacks. Uh, I had the arm to, to, to make any throw in the league, and, and I was fortunate to be pretty mobile at that time as well. Probably one of your best games was that 75 Monday Night Football game against the Bills. Yeah, that was, uh, I, I believe, the first Monday Night game in Cincinnati, and uh you know, they came in with O.J. Simpson in his prime, and, you know, it's the best game I ever had, at least yardage-wise. I think I threw for four, 
150, something like that, and O.J. ran for almost 200. There was not a lot of defense uh, in that game, uh, and we managed to win it. 75 season, 11-3 record for the Bengals, the, the most victories in, in team history at that point. Could you tell that you had a, a team that was going to do special things? Yeah, and we we had really developed, and we had a you know a pretty good year in '74 and and '75. You know, I mean, eleven to three, but we were the wild card. You know, uh, I think you know during that period of years, we happened to be uh, stuck in the same division with Pittsburgh, who was you know one of the great teams of all times, one of the great defenses of all times. But you know, for most years, we we managed to hold our own against them, and uh, you know, uh, like I said, we we felt we were a pretty good team that could play with anybody that year. Were the Steelers the toughest defense you had to go up against during the 70s? Oh, no question. I mean, you look at the, the number of Hall of Famers that they had on that defense. And, and of course, when you're talking about uh, on the other side with Bradshaw and, and Swan and Stallworth, and they had a lot of weapons over there. And, you know, that we had some, some great battles uh, with them. And, uh, you know, I, it, it was kind of fun because at the end of my coaching career, I got to spend three years coaching in Pittsburgh and, and renewed a lot of those friendships. Yeah. I do believe you had a game against the Steelers where you went 20 or 22. Yeah. yeah. It, uh, so so they, they couldn't have been that tough, right? Well, you know, it was, I, I, I think, you know, it was just, we were patient that game. They were, you know, they played a lot of, you know, cover two and, you know, they could get to the quarterback with a four-man rush, and, and uh, you know, we just we took what the defense gave them and, and won in a tight one. But I, I think the thing I remember most about that game is, is late in the game we were going in, and it's you know, somewhere around the 20-yard line, and uh, our, our running back went up the middle and, uh, you know, was tackled and, you know, rolled over, put the ball on the ground, and uh, thought the play was over. But for some reason, no whistle had blown, and, Mike Wagner, uh, with their safety picked it up and started running and I chased him down. Uh, they ended up not scoring on that drive and, uh, we held on to win. So Mel Blunt didn't give you any props in that game. Well, you know, uh, it, it, it Mel, but what, jeez, what a, what a quarterback he was. I mean, one of the first, you know, big corners that there were. And in fact, uh, you know, that's why the, you know, the, the, the five-yard chuck rule ended up coming into being because he was so big and physical that you couldn't get off the line against him. And so, uh, you know, we had to face him twice a year. And I, I think Paul Brown happened to be on the competition committee at that time, and that may have had some influence. Yeah. I think they ended up calling it the Isaac Curtis rule, right? No, that's well, that, that would probably be a good name for it. But your cornerback that on your team wasn't too shabby either in uh, Ken Riley. Kenny was, you know, uh, you know, was a quarterback at, at Florida A&M and came in, and became a defensive back. And, and sometimes I, I think he got overshadowed a little bit. We had a real good cornerback on the other side named Lamar Parrish, who happened to be a little bit more flashy uh, than Kenny was. But he was just steady and, and then played, I think, 15 years in the league and, and had more interceptions than anybody in, in Bengals history and, and just one of the, the great guys and one of the, the solid players ever to play cornerback. And I, I think there's a guy that should get some Hall of Fame recognition. How tough was it ending that 75 season with the 31-28 loss to, uh, to Oakland? Well, you know, it, it, was, it was tough. And they got off to a, an early lead, and we kept coming back. And, 
I remember going down and I, you know, we, we had come back and we're going down. We got a chance to win the game and it was a fourth down and I can still see Chip Myers coming over the, the middle. And unfortunately, Ted Hendricks got a sack, I believe, on that play. But, you know, I think the topic is after that game, that's when, when Paul Brown retired and, uh, you know, Bill Walsh left and, uh, and went to San Diego uh, from there. How did Bill Walsh not end up getting the job as the head coach? I never got that. Well, you know, I don't know. You know, what people don't remember is Bill Johnson was our line coach, uh, you know, was a great player uh, with the San Francisco 49ers, was a, a center, was on, you know, all half-century teams, uh, and was a, an excellent football coach. And, and to be quite honest with you, I thought at that point in time, you know, I agreed with the decision. As much as I hated to lose Bill Walsh, you know, I thought, you know, Tiger Johnson was, was probably more ready at that point in time to become a head coach. At one point you had an Ohio State backfield uh, with Archie Griffin and Pete Johnson. Did, did you say to yourself, I'm glad I, I didn't play at Ohio State because all I ever would have done was hand off to those two guys? Well, you know, in the Woody Hager, I, I'd love to play for Urban Meyer. Uh, you know, <laughs> he does, but that's, you know, that was, you know, the, the three yards and the cloud of dust and, you know, with Woody's philosophy that, you know, when you when you throw, three things can happen and two uh, of them are sure. bad and we're just not going to do it. But, uh, you know, I, I think one of the, the big weapons, and, you know, Archie was more of a, a role player with us, but, you know, Pete was our fullback. And, you know, and, and those offenses of, of Paul Brown in those days, the, the fullback was the, the main ball carrier, and, and Pete was a 1,000-yard rusher. Was there any concern when Forrest Gray became head coach that he would try to use that Packers system with the two running backs and just keep running the ball? Well, you know, I, I think uh, one of the things, uh, you know, Forrest was a, a great coach and just what we needed. Uh, you know, we had, in, in the late 70s, we were not a, a very good football team, and we needed somebody tough, somebody to install discipline, and uh, and Forrest was, was certainly that guy. But I, I think one of the the big attributes was that his offensive coordinator was Lindy Infante. And Lindy was a, a great offensive football coach. And, you know, we were one of the first ones to, to run what is now the, the nakeds and the bootlegs. And, uh, geez, I, I think, you know, our Super Bowl year was about my 10th year in the league. And I think, you know, I was the second leading rusher on the team because of that. Uh, we had uh, started, you know, installing an option game. You know, and Danny Ross was the, the perfect tight end, uh, you know, to run that when he's running off a technique and he and I were on the same page and, you know, we kind of run the little smash routes on the outside and it's kind of inside, outside, high, low. And, you know, Lindy brought a, a lot of innovations to the game for us. What was that 81 season like when you guys went to the Super Bowl? Did, did you know in training camp that you could be something of that caliber? Well, I, I think we we knew we could be a pretty good football team, uh, you know, and I think we started to believe that at the end of the '80 season, Forrest's first year, we we started to, to play better, and then you know, it, it uh, my replacement had already been drafted uh, that year, Jack Thompson out of Washington, and uh, or Washington, I think it was Washington, um, the throwing Samoan, and you know, it, it, the Super Bowl year started off, but I. We were playing Seattle in opening day, and I threw three picks in the first quarter and got benched. Uh, Jack had a sprained ankle, and they brought in our third guy, Turk Schoenert, and brought us back to win. And, you know, some doubts whether I would play anymore. And uh, then we're going the next week and had to play the, the Jets uh, in New York. And that's when they had the sack exchange with, 
you know, Gastineau and Klecko and Lyons and Abdul Salam and, and those guys. And I didn't know if I wanted to play against them anyway, but you know, we, we managed to win that one and, you know, started off, I think maybe two and two, but you know, what we really caught fire is, you know, we had five games in November against all playoff teams and, and literally, you know, kind of handled all five of them to, to put us in position to, to go into the playoffs. Is it true that you had to lobby uh, Forrest Gregg to start? Well, you know, we had that week we had talked uh, a lot about a lot of scenarios. Uh, is it better if I start? Is it better if I come off the bench? And so he said, uh, you know, before Wednesday's practice, he says, you know, come on into my office early. And, you know, we came in and we started the discussion. He said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to start. He said, okay, you're start. So it uh, became a pretty easy decision. No. You were named Comeback Player of the Year and MVP that year, but your 1980 season wasn't that horrendous where you should have been a Comeback Player of the Year. Well, you know, I, I think that's a, a year I, I had a little bit of a knee injury that I played with and, you know, and, and kind of, you know, struggled through it a lot. But, uh, you know, luckily in, in 81, you know, Lindy, I mean, I, I can't give him enough credit. Uh, you know, I had gotten into some some bad habits and, you know, we really, you know, kind of took an off season and, and went back to, to square one and went back to fundamentals, and, and, and I got to play in some pretty good football again. game you probably didn't want to play in was that freezer bowl against the Chargers. I mean, you can't believe how cold that was that day. And, you know, uh, I, I, the, the story that I tell most about that is I'm glad there was was no ESPN and all those sports networks uh, in those days because it was in the first quarter and and we had never I think there was only one set of heated benches in the league and they brought them in and so I, I'm sitting over there on the sidelines and and the, luckily I've got my helmet on but I'm I'm sitting on my hands and they've got those little slots that your feet can go into and there's a roar of the crowd and I stand up to see if there's a turnover if I'm going back on and my feet don't come out. And I go down, and I couldn't get my hands in front of me. And the first thing that hit was my face mask, and, and I'm seeing stars. And I, I, I called the trainer over for some ammonia tablets. I said, I can't get knocked out of this game falling off a bench. <laughs> well, I, I don't know what you're talking about it being cold. It was only nine below, a, a wind chill of what, minus 59? It's you say to yourself, gee, where's a dome stadium when I need one? <laughs> well, you know, and, and it it was – it was so cold. Uh, you, you know, it, it, and I remember Forrest Gregg's pregame talk was, he said, man, I played in a, uh, a game like this, uh, you know, years ago when I was with the Packers. And he said, it's a lot like going to the dentist. You know, it's going to hurt, but you got to go anyway. <laughs> well, at least the, uh, the Super Bowl was indoors. Yeah. You know, and, and, uh, I, I tried to put that one out of my mind and, you know, it was, uh, we went into that game and, and I had two interceptions and we had three fumbles and, and, you know, you can't expect uh, to win a game like that. If you're going to have, you know, five turnovers in San Francisco, it was a, a great football team. And, you know, we, we moved the ball a lot, but we tended to, to stub our own toes and, uh, and, and you can't win it when you're going to turn the ball over. Yeah. But down 20, nothing at halftime and final score being 26 to 21, you have to say to yourself, you know, we showed, if nothing else, we certainly deserve to be on the same field with that team. Well, yeah, and, you know, like I say, it, it's 
you know, the opening kickoff, they fumbled. We got a good field position, made a couple of first downs, and then it's third and goal on the five, and I throw an interception, but we get no points. Uh, in the second quarter, you know, I hit Chris Collinsworth. We got a first down inside the 20. You know, we're going to get points out of that. He fumbles it. And then we, you know, we fumbled, you know, two kickoffs, you know, right before half that led to six points for them. And, and then still, all in all, you know, we had, uh, they had a goal line stand and, and we couldn't put it in from the two yard lines in four tries. And, you know, so you, you go back and, you know, woulda, shoulda, coulda, and, uh, the end result is we still got beat. That 82 season, when you completed 70% of your passes, do you think that was your best season as a quarterback? Well, I don't know. You know, that was, uh, it was a strike year. We only played nine games, but we were, you know, seven and two that year. And, uh, you know, I, I, I thought for sure we're going back to the Super Bowl. And, you know, we were, you know, as good as anybody. And, uh, you know, unfortunately we ran into a, a pretty hot Jets team in, uh, in uh, the, the first round of the playoffs. And I think Freeman McNeil ran for 200 and threw for a touchdown pass and, and we didn't survive. And, you know, you realize at that point it's, you know, it's awful tough to get there. Did you have a favorite receiver to throw to? Oh, gosh, I, I had a lot of them. You know, early in my career, you know, Chip Myers was a, a big receiver, kind of took me under his wing. We had Bob Trumpy uh, as our tight end in those years, and, you know, they, they've got all the pass-catching tight ends nowadays. And I said, you know, Trumpy was that guy before any of these guys back in the early 70s. You know, he was, you know, 6'4", 6'5", could really run, was an outstanding weapon, and, you know, geez, you know, then Isaac Curtis comes and, you know, people forget for a while we, for about two or three years, we had Isaac Curtis and Charlie Joyner both. Uh, we got him in a trade from Houston and ultimately let him go in a trade uh, to San Diego. Uh, and, but uh, that was a, a great tandem of receivers. And, you know, and then all of a sudden in the eighties, you know, Collinsworth comes in and we got Danny Ross as a tight end. And so I was, you know, really lucky to play with a lot of good guys. I read where, uh, Paul Brown thought quite highly of Isaac Curtis because he said uh, Isaac had a quiet confidence. He wasn't one of these guys who showboated and spiked the ball and all this other stuff. Is that pretty much who Isaac Curtis was on the field? Yeah, yeah, no question about it. And, and, you know, we knew from the first practice that Isaac was special. And, uh, and he kind of, you know, I don't want to say he got special treatment, but he's the only guy I know in training camp that he come out and he said, I think my hamstring's tight. And Paul Brown said, well, you better take the day off then. You know, anybody else, you know, you think it's tight. But I said, we didn't want to take any chances with him. We needed him on the field. How did you know when it was time to call it a career? Well, I don't think you ever do. Uh, you know, at the end of my career, I was backing up Boomer, and, uh, and, and I went into a game uh, in Houston and – you know, uh, he, he wasn't playing well and Sam White's put me in and we went down and scored a couple touchdowns. And, you know, then I'm, I'm running, uh, away from a blitz and, and hurt my shoulder. And, uh, so I'm going into my 17th year and I worked out really hard in the off season. And, you know, we came to mini camp and, and Sam had, uh, White had said, geez, how you feel, Kenny? And how's you doing your physical? I said, geez, I've really worked out hard this off season coach. I'm ready to go. And, he said, well, guess again. And, you know, my back had been bothering me and my shoulder. And we went in and, and kind of determined that, uh, that I was done. And, and I, I fought it for a while. And, you know, then you come to the realization that, you know, they were right. And, uh, you know, physically I, I was just done playing. 
How did you end up in the radio booth? Well, you know, I, I always wanted to coach. And, uh, you know, everybody kind of says, you know, geez, you know, you, you don't want to do one that. All the hours that a coach work, you know, that's, you're just being stupid. And I didn't want to be stupid. And <laughs> so, geez, they, you know, they, they hired me uh, for a local radio and television station, ended up doing uh, the Bengals game with, with Dave Lapham, who was my roommate for about 10 years and, and really enjoyed doing that and, and started doing a little TV work. And, you know, after six years of that, you know, kind of kept going back, you know, I realized I probably wasn't real good in that business. And, and I always wanted to coach and, uh, Dave Schubel was the head coach of the Bengals and, and gave me an opportunity. Did you Did ever you think know? to yourself that, you know what, I want to be a head coach? Well, you know, I, I think that's, you know, always something that you would like to do. And, you know, uh, you know, I coached in Cincinnati for, for 10 years and, you know, we didn't have a lot of great teams. And I, I, you know, when you look at who gets head coaching opportunities, you know, they, they come from, you know, teams that are, that are winning. Uh, but I, you know, I had a, a great mentor in my coaching, uh, Tom Moore, who's still coaching, uh, the assistant head coach, uh, you know, out with the Arizona Cardinals, but he and I became great friends over the years was a, you know, a big coaching mentor of mine. And, you know, and he always told me, he says, Kenny, there's nothing wrong with being a good assistant coach. And, uh, you know, I kind of always believe that if, if you work hard and you do your job, uh, you know, things will take care of themselves. I know the pensions are better for assistant coaches than the former players. What's that? The pensions are better for the former coaches than for the players. That's why I could retire uh, <laughs> when I did because of the, the coach's pension. Um, but uh, no, it was, uh, you know, I had 17 great years of coaching and 17 wonderful years of playing and, uh, you know, and, and six years of, of covering football as a broadcaster and, you know, it was time to kind of slow down and uh, and chase around grandkids. I, th- I think there's a certain irony that a guy who is so identified as a Cincinnati Bengal picks up a Super Bowl ring with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Well, you know, I, I think a lot of people in, in Cincinnati had a tough time with that. And, and I said, you know, uh, I'm not the one that wanted uh, to leave Cincinnati and you know, they, uh, they brought in Marvin Lewis, who's done a great job in Cincinnati, and, and every coach wants to bring in his own staff. And, and so I was let go. And, and, you know, I spent, you know, four years down in, in Jacksonville. And, uh, you know, at the end, I was one of 19 assistant coaches that Jacksonville Real fired. Uh, and I, I needed a job. And, uh, you know, the Pittsburgh Steelers and Coach Tomlin gave me one and, and had three great years up there. Uh, and, and really, my wife and I enjoyed our stay up there. And, and had a chance to win a Super Bowl, and I still remember getting back to the team hotel that night, and and went into the bar and, and kind of waiting for all my family to get back from the game. And Lynn Swan comes up and puts his arms around me, and says, "Kenny, you finally got a Super Bowl ring, but you had to come to Pittsburgh to get it." <laughs> and it helped too that uh, your mentoring made Ben Roethlisberger the great quarterback that he is. Well, I, I don't think I had a lot to do with that. Ben is a, a, a tremendous player, and. Uh, you know, he, he kind of gets, uh, you know, the notoriety. Geez, he, he can't, you know, he's so big, you can't get him down. He makes great plays, you know, outside the pocket and he can, he can tear you up inside the pocket as well. Uh, you know, th- th- this guy, you know, had it all. And, and I think I, I rode his coattails more than he, I helped him out. How is it that the Bengals never retired your number and Andy Dalton's wearing it these days? 
Well, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, the Bengals have retired one number, and that was uh, their first number one draft choice, Bob Johnson, number 54, who's still a great friend of mine, was my center for a, a lot of years. And and I think the, the league had, had discouraged teams from retiring numbers, and so they, they never did. And uh, uh, when they were going to draft Andy, I got a call from the draft room, and they wanted to know if it would be – uh, okay with me if they gave Dalton number 14 and, you know, what are you going to say? And uh, so my <laughs> comment was to them, yeah, he can have number 14, but he better play good. <laughs> and so far, and, and so far he's played pretty good. How hard is it being a finalist for the Hall of Fame and not getting in? Well, I think the, the, the first time when I was eligible and got down to the final 15, it was, it was disappointing. And, and then after that, you know, quite honestly, I don't think about it. Uh, you know, I, I really am proud of the career that I've had. And now that I've retired, I, I get to spend a little bit more time back in Cincinnati and, and I get to see former teammates a lot more. And, you know, and I just enjoy being around those guys. And, you know, we've got one Hall of Famer, and, you know, certainly turned my career around in the age when we drafted Anthony Munoz to play left tackle. And, but just to, you know, to be around those guys and to reminisce and tell stories and, you know, the the one nice thing is the farther you get away from uh, from playing, uh, your memory gets uh, a little bit, well, I, I don't want to say clouded, but uh, you only remember the good times, and, and sometimes you embellish those, and you're probably a little bit better player than you really were. Well, that always helps, you know, especially for the people that never saw you play. Yeah. Well, and when, when I go out to talk, the, the title of my talk is My Career As I Remember It. I make no attempt to get date, facts, or statistics correct. <laughs> Do you think to yourself, if you would have went nationally or broadcast, you'd probably get in? Because it seems like nowadays the people who are getting in are the ESPN, NFL Network, CBS, NBC guys. I mean, they pump these guys up like a Kurt Warner is a finalist this year. But, again, your stats are better than Kurt Warner's. Well, you know, I, I don't know. It, 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 it's, you know it, it's so hard to go by stats because of the era – you know, that I played in, you know, what they call it up until 79 was the dead ball era, mm-hmm. you know, when, when offensive linemen, you know, could not extend their arms. They had to keep their hands within the framework of the body. Pass protection was tough. You didn't throw the ball as much. You only played 14 games. Uh, and, and now it's a, a much more wide open game. And, you know, and we were a small market team and, you know, there was, was, you know, no ESPN, and you know, you. I remember Monday Night Football was such a a big deal because that was the first time you saw highlights from other games around the country. I mean, you know, it wasn't like you go home Sunday night and you're you're catching the league highlights. There, there were no highlights till till Monday Night Football. So I I don't think as many people, you know, got a chance to see me play. You know, I don't even know who the voters are now and uh, whether they're old enough to have seen me play. And so, like I say, I. Uh, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about it. Uh, I, I'm more concerned about helping my little grandson, you know, hit a baseball, hit a golf ball, and, and, and dressing up my little granddaughter in her gowns. <laughs> How did the Ken Anderson Foundation come about? Well, you know, I've got uh, my wife and I have a nephew who's severely autistic, and uh, you know, he had some behavioral issues, and, and it just so he could get violent at times and his parents realized he could no longer live at home. And he went to a, a facility and uh, we always say it was bare bones, but, you know, it was about eight cabins with 10, 12 boys in each cabin. And, 
and he did well in that environment. But he, he turned 22, and he had to go into a group home, and, and sometimes the options there aren't uh, what you'd like them to be. And so we, we started our foundation to build a community for adults with autism and other developmental disabilities, you know, as we say, a place where they can live, work, and play, and it'll be a, a totally, you know, integrated community and in that there will be other homes for uh, people without developmental disabilities as, as well. So uh, we uh, we keep plugging away with, with that goal. We've uh, we've been on our own for uh, just about a year now, and uh, uh, things are progressing. We have our own 501c3 status, and uh, so we are a charitable foundation, and uh, we keep plugging away. And, you know, we hope uh, to make a, a difference in, in the lives of those with developmental disabilities and to, to let them live uh, their life uh, as best as they can, as independent as they can. It seems like the Cincinnati athletes tend to stay in the community and do a lot for the community. Yourself, like you said, Anthony Munoz is active in the community. Even even though Boomer's living in New York, it seems like he does a lot in Cincinnati also. Well, you know, Cincinnati is home to a lot of us, and you're right. Uh, uh, a lot of guys uh, have made Cincinnati their home. Uh, uh, I didn't want to be cold anymore and shovel snow, so I'm down in Hilton Head, South Carolina. But we get, you know, because of the foundation, because of grandkids, we get back once a month. And, uh, you know, and, and, and Cincinnati is, uh, has been a wonderful community, you know, for me. You know, we, we still call it home. And uh, like I say, and, and so to be able to do a project like this in Cincinnati means a lot to us. I think you call every month to go to Montgomery Inn for the ribs. Well, you know, that's, <laughs> that's a must stop. You know, you got to be there and you got to do Skyline Chili whenever you get back. So, does it help I mean, being got, the former, gotta, does it help being the former Bengal quarterback? You don't have to wait in line when you go for Skyline Chili or to Montgomery Inn? Well, you know, if you've seen me lately, I look nothing like the guy that played football, so nobody knows who the heck I am. Well, you, you need to walk around in a Ken Anderson jersey and a helmet on. Uh, I, I say that for the grandkids. You know, they've, all, they've, they've all got small jerseys, and, and it was kind of funny because, um, oh, my mother and, and father passed away years ago, but my sister was kind of cleaning up some stuff that, that she had in her garage and had a couple old helmets of mine. So uh, one grandson got one and one grandson got the other. So uh, uh, they're, they're well taken care of. Do they have an appreciation for who Ken Anderson, the football player, was as opposed to Grandpa? Well, no, because uh, the, the two oldest ones are three, and then I've oh. got one grandson that's a year old, and, and my other little granddaughter is uh, is seven months old now. So, But they, they will know. they got enough stuff around. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure talking to you. Well, it's always a pleasure. Uh, you know, it kind of feels, uh, you know, talk with you guys, but I, I'm back home with the cave a little bit. I appreciate the opportunity. That does it for another edition of Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com. I'd like to thank our guests, Bill McCartney and Ken Anderson. Also like to thank our executive producer, Dave Olson. Tune in again next time to Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com. <laughs>